As we've been working our way through the, the books of First and Second Samuel, we've seen that God's people are, are being prepared and called to anticipate and to prepare for the coming of God's kingdom. Uh, one of the things that we've seen is that uh, there's many different obstacles uh, and things that can complicate the coming of that kingdom. Last week we saw, and what we looked at was uh, these, uh, the kingdoms of man and their oppositions to the sure coming of the kingdom of God. This morning, as we look in chapter 3 of uh, the book of 2 Samuel, uh, the, this passage is, is helping to draw our attention to sin in the hearts of God's people. Things that we need to make sure that we're giving our attention to, to make sure we're dealing with as we prepare for the coming of God's King and the coming of God's kingdom. So if you would, look with me in chapter 3 of the book of Second Samuel. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, you'll find this on page 256. We're going to look at the whole chapter together this morning. So if you would, uh, follow along with me in your copy there of God's Word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine, whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with fault concerning a woman? God, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what Yahweh has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bride price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Patiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Barim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. 
And Abner confirmed with, conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For Yahweh has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go, and I will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had... Uh, sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army was with him uh, came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Nair came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you? Why is it that you've sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Nair came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you were doing? When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before Yahweh for the blood of Abner, the son of Nair. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. And David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was uh, yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Nair. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. Yahweh repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for how in your mercy and your grace um, you have spoken to our fathers through the prophets. You've spoken in the last days through the Son, and now you continue to speak through your word that you've preserved and given to us, your people. Speak today. Holy Spirit, apply your words to our hearts. 
that we would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ, our King, and the Son of our Heavenly Father. Amen. Kids, if you want to keep track of some words today, they're all going to be our words. Uh, one would be inconsistency. Uh, one would be inaccurate or inaccuracy. And the last would be indifference. So, uh, uh, inconsistency, inaccuracy, and indifference. Um, or if you would prefer, you could draw a picture of Abner and Joab's little secret meeting in the, the gate there at Hebron. Um, might make for some interesting artwork. Uh, um, Harris has, uh, has met uh, a good friend over the course of the past two years. Comes by our house every Thursday and Friday. This is the driver of the garbage truck. We go out on the front porch and wave to him. And uh, if Harris isn't out front, sometimes he'll stop and honk his horn and wait until Harris is able to come out. Things have been complicated now that he's back in preschool. But uh, sometimes even when, uh, when he's driving down the other side of the street, we, uh, we see him and wave to him. Um, sometimes we try to catch him and run him down on, uh, on our bikes after I pick Harris up from school. Uh, but things have been complicated recently. Because although consistently he was coming by our house regular time, garbage always being picked up, trash going away, Lately, not just on our street, but uh, around the city, garbage service has been a lot more inconsistent. It seems that they can't keep the trucks running. In fact, yesterday, Saturday, garbage doesn't get picked up on Saturday. Yet in front of our house, what was there? A garbage truck picking up trash on Saturday. But it had to stop across the street in front of our house. It was a rental garbage truck. Did you know you could rent such things? Next time you're trying to go on a family trip, no better ride than a garbage truck. Or you want to impress your friends when you go to the prom. Boy, roll up in the trash truck. Anyway, this garbage truck is sitting across the road from our house, just sitting there, not picking up the trash, because the rental truck had also broken down. You see, inconsistency leads to complications in fulfilling the mission and the purpose of the trash pickup in Elizabeth City. But also what we see here in this passage that inconsistency in the lives of God's people, particularly what we see here, inconsistency in David's life, leads to complications for the kingdom of God. Think about the David that we have encountered through First and Second Samuel so far. We met him as a, a boy, a man of a, a, a young man of great faith, who, when everyone else was cowering in fear, even saw the king David trust in his God and sees deliverance come over the, the Philistine Goliath. David continues to walk in faithfulness 
before his God, trusting him to bring about great deliverance for God's people in the battles that he faced. Even when Saul is persecuting him, David continues to exercise faithfulness and not taking uh, Saul's life when he had the opportunity to, many times, trusting himself in the Lord. But also, we've seen unfaithfulness on David's part, haven't we? Remember when he fled to the Philistines multiple times to find deliverance, failing to inquire of the Lord and seeking God's guidance and where he should go and what he'd do, content just to, to, to rely on his own wisdom and to do what he thinks would deliver and save him. Here, in the beginning of this chapter, we find again an account of the inconsistency in David's life, how he's, in his faithfulness before God, David proves to be an inconsistent king. Do you notice how it starts off in verse 2? And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, his second Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, the third Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur, the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggath, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ithriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Here, David is taking on multiple Wives. Here, we have six that are mentioned just in this passage. This is going against God's intentions and design. We, we see from Genesis that God's intention was for one man to marry one woman, for them to be bound together in faithfulness and trust and love for their life. But here, David has gone against that, committing adultery with multiple, multiple Women. Not only that, David's doubly broken the law in God's intention because he is the king. And God specifically has revealed his intentions for his king and the way that they are to lead and rule. Look over in Deuteronomy 17, verses 17 and following. Listen to what God says should be the practice and what faithfulness looks like for the king of his people. And he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh as God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. What does God say? Kings of Israel, David, do you want to know how to preserve and to seek longevity for your kingdom? It comes through trusting and relying on me, walking in faithfulness, trusting me that I will provide for you, 
and that the instructions that I have given you are for your best interest, for the best interest of my people, and for the best interest of my glory. But what do we see David doing here? He's disregarded this. David thinks there's another path forward to longevity in his kingdom and for building up strength. You notice up in verse 1, it told us David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. We talked and mentioned last week that God was definitely at work in that. But when we begin to think about what the, the culture at that time did look like to make oneself strong, it was a certain type of political maneuvering. Notice how it shows and identifies that for us when it mentions Abner. Look down in verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. How was Abner making himself strong? Look at what it says. Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to his father said to Abner, "Why have you gone into my father's concubine?" See What Abner was doing was one of the ways for him to exert control, and many people think what he's doing here is he's making a move for the kingdom to overtake Ishbosheth that he'd set on the throne by taking Saul's concubines, because if he did that, that was a way for him to gain power and authority and control and to demonstrate to everybody that he was in charge. David here is doing something that's very similar to Abner and to the rest of the world at that time, which was the way that you gain peace, the, gain, the way that you gain territory, the way that you gain influence and expand your kingdom is through multiplying marriages. And that's what we see David doing here. Do you notice who it, it mentions? Absalom's mother. Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. David's marrying other, the, the women from other nations and people groups. Geshur happens to be on up kind of the, the northern border of Ishbosheth's growing kingdom. Why would David have any interest in marrying anyone up there if it weren't out of fear and concern that this is the only way that I can provide longevity for my kingdom and to provide protection if anything goes down? I have them on my side because now his daughter has been married into my family. In fact, uh, when David calls and wants Michael to come and for Ishbosheth to send him, remember that was uh, Michael was uh, who David uh, received because of his uh, victory and his faithfulness on behalf of the people of Israel from Saul. That here we see uh, her second husband that she was given when Saul took her away from David. Uh, he comes weeping, concerned about, about her and about losing her, but there's no emotions described and talked about as far as David's relationship with Michael. It seems, again, here, because we have very little to go on as far as trusting David's interactions with, with women. He consistently goes against God's commands and his intentions. And here, David seems to be, again, wanting to use Michael as a means to gain influence, and a path back into uh, the, the former royal family and to gain influence and status within Israel. The inconsistency of David continues to come up over and over again. And in fact, if we look 
later we're going to encounter each of these children that are mentioned here in verses 2 through 5. And these children are a source of great hardship for David and dishonoring God and His kingdom. All of this is beginning to highlight for us that David is an inconsistent and ultimately incapable of fully bringing the kingdom of God. If God's kingdom is going to come in its fullness, we need one greater than David. We need one who will always walk and rule in faithfulness, honoring God as his father. In fact, God in His mercy and His grace has provided just such a one for His people. Uh, uh, because here in the, in the book of First and Second Samuel, we're, we're drawn, and the people who initially would have read this would have uh, been called to give their allegiance and their honor to God's appointed, authorized king, the heirs of David, despite their shortcomings. But for us... We're in a much different place because the heir of David that we follow, the heir of David who has secured our salvation and our redemption has no shortcomings. The author of Hebrews, as he speaks about Jesus in chapter four of Hebrews, talks about Jesus in this way. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was the perfect, sinless high priest. Jesus was the perfect, sinless prophet. Jesus is the perfect, sinless king. The one that we need. The one who redeemed and saved David, who placed his faith in his heir to come. And the one who redeems and saves and delivers us. As God's people, we need to examine and look at our own hearts the inconsistency of our faithfulness. Who and what, like David, are we looking to in, in hope to find safety, to find security, to find deliverance? We might say, well, I'm not marrying multiple wives. What are you, what are you talking about? But do we not have the same tendencies that David does to look to other things for deliverance and freedom? Maybe it's not multiple wives, but maybe it's multiple uh, men or women on the internet to escape and find acceptance and deliverance through one who will never reject you every time you go to click on that, that website. Maybe during this uh, this upcoming political season, like David, we might begin to give our hearts too much and thinking 
that our only hope is in who will be elected or not elected in the upcoming cycle. Instead of giving our full hopes and allegiance to our God and our King. For we serve one who faithfully rules and reigns and whose kingdom will come forever. And as God's people, we need to take a look at our own hearts. We need to look at David, the inconsistent king, and that points us to our faithful King Jesus. That we would turn from our inconsistency and look to the one who is forever consistently faithful to us, his people. So, this passage draws us to examine David's inconsistency in our own. But also, we look at Abner. We see something else exposed. An inaccurate self-perception. Notice what Abner says in verse 9. As he reaches, as he responds to Ishbosheth, God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what Yahweh has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. It's, it's interesting here. Abner. As he looks at himself, as he evaluates his gifts, his skill, Abner seems to think that it is in his power to bring about and accomplish the promises of God. The way even that he speaks to David, he's using language that's very similar to what God has communicated to David already through his prophet, that his hand will be with him that he'll be present with him, that he will bring about and accomplish all that he has promises. Yet Abner puts himself in the position to say, I am the one who has the ability to do this. In fact, later, as he's communicating and talking to, uh, to David down in verse 12, he sends messengers to David on his behalf saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all over all Israel to you. That rhetorical question that Abner asks. To whom does the land belong? Who's he talking about? God's possession of the land? That it's David's rightfully? And so Abner will respond in that way? Or does Abner think, I've got it. I'm the one who is centralized this government up here. David, really, uh, what you need most is me. I am going to be a great benefit to you. Abner's perception of himself is one to where he doesn't really seem to have any concern and think that his response should be one who is submitting rightfully to God's king. Do you notice... uh, It seems like a a fine time for Abner to bring up the promises of God. Because he's been dismissing and living his life in rebellion against them from the beginning. He is aware and knows that the kingdom is going to be transferred to David and that God has granted it to him. But here, Abner brings up these promises only because it seems like he can see some sort of advantage for himself. Ishbosheth's 
a weakling, this kingdom's not going to grow. I see David's power advancing in the, in the, in the south. But my only hope, what I'm going to do, is I'm going to, through engaging and talking to David, I'm going to seek to gain and merit favor in his eyes. Through my performance, through the things that I do, through the way that I relate to him, and if I can communicate and demonstrate to him how good I am, then maybe I will be accepted and into that kingdom and move to a place to where I'm, I have an elevated status. I'm accepted. I'm delighted in. You see, the motives of Abner are focused on himself. No concern for the glory and the honor of God's kingdom. No concern to evaluate and recognize I am the one who needs to be dependent upon my God and his authorized king. But Abner is focused on himself. As God's people, we need to recognize these tendencies in our own selves to have inaccurate self-perceptions of our own gifts, our own strengths, our own abilities. The, the, the first people who, who need to listen to this as the leaders of our church, us as the elders, our deacon, our, our other leaders and teachers, that we need to not be those who have the hearts and the minds of one like Abner, who thinks that we are a gift to God. That it's going to be through our great skill and our great ability that much is accomplished in this church and in this world. Do we realize God doesn't need us? In the mornings, I don't know why all these illustrations have to do with Harris this morning, but they do. Harris and I get up early together, make breakfast, and every morning he wants to help. He wants to help me make breakfast. And, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, that just takes a whole lot more time. Things are a lot more inefficient when Harris is helping me make breakfast. I could get it done a lot faster, a lot cleaner, without mistakes or errors. But even though I don't need him, I involve him in what I'm doing. Why? Because I love him. I want to spend time with him. I want him to enjoy and to participate in what we are doing together and for him to experience fellowship and life with his dad. Do you ever view your relationship and your place in God's kingdom in that way? That God doesn't need you Yet he chooses this inefficient route of using sinners to expand and grow his kingdom. How much quicker would things have been accomplished without sinful Israel, without sinful David, without sinful you and me? For God to just work and move and act all on his own. But in His grace and His mercy, He is calling and using and at work in the lives of sinful people to involve us in participating in His great mission of rescue and restoration as His fellow workers 
proclaiming the good news that reconciliation with God is possible through the work of Jesus. As God's people, that should humble us to recognize and see that what our hearts and our lives should reflect is one of humble dependence upon our God, seeking Him to be at work and thankful that He would use us in any way and humbling ourselves before our great King that He would receive glory and honor in everything. So what we're beginning to see in this passage is that God's people, as we look forward and as we anticipate the coming of God's King and His kingdom, that we need to make sure that we're we're looking into our hearts, that we're identifying inconsistency like David. We're we're identifying inaccurate self-perception like we see in Abner. And lastly, we are identifying indifference like Joab, who is indifferent to his king's reputation. In verses 22 through following, we are told of how Joab goes and he murders Abner, secretly calling him back and pulling him aside into this secret or this uh, private room at the gate and murdering Abner for his killing of his brother uh, Asahel that we read about in the, the last chapter. Abner there, or uh, Joab there, thinking about avenging his brother's death, also, as we'll see, and as we've seen about the character of Joab and how the author of Second Samuel has been portraying him to us, that he as well is one who is seeking power. Abner is now viewing, being viewed as a threat, one who's gained all of this, this appears to be favor in David's eyes. David's thrown him a feast. What about me? But here, Abner, I mean, Joab is not concerned in the least with how his actions will reflect upon his king. He is indifferent to how he, as the chief of David's armies, and the things that he does will reflect upon his king to the people and to the watching world. That's really the emphasis that we see in the, in the, the end of this chapter. The author is going out of his way to make sure that those who read this know that David played no part in the death of Abner. Do you notice how many times it mentioned as we were reading through it before that when David sent Abner away, that Abner went away in peace? It it, it, it mentioned that multiple times over and over. That he, he, uh, that he had gone in peace, that David let he, that Abner went away in peace. It was told Joab that uh, David, he came and then David let him go and he has gone in peace. Then afterwards, when it is uh, let n- known to David that Abner has died at the hand of Joab, in verse 28 it tells us, David heard of it and he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before Yahweh for the blood of Abner the son of Nair. And then he issues these curses down upon Joab and his family for their wickedness, for their disobedience. David, again, laments and calls everybody around him to mourn and weep over Abner's loss. And then notice what it says down in verse 36. 
And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Nair. You see, up to that point, the conclusion could have been made. Joab is acting on behalf of his king. And Joab is doing what the king would want him to do. Therefore, this was David's will and his desire. But what we're seeing is, no, that is not the case. But Joab didn't consider those things. It's necessary that that the character and the honor of David be defended here. That he isn't seeking to gain the kingdom through more murder and deceit but that he's trusting in the Lord. Again, we're seeing the inconsistency of David to bring about the kingdom. Back in 2016, the Rio Olympics, uh, one of the U.S. swimmers, Ryan Lochte, and some of the other uh, of his U.S. teammates um, were, uh, got in trouble in Brazil for uh, vandalism and um, Uh, unwholesome actions in Rio while they were there. They lied about what happened Uh, later. There was uh, a big scandal among the Olympic uh, community, uh, among the U.S. swim team. And Lochte and these other uh, swimmers received significant penalties. Unable to compete with the U.S. swim team for many months, Uh, They were uh, barred from going to award ceremonies. Uh, They were prevented from uh, from swimming in these different events. Uh, the, the, The penalties were harsh and swift from the U.S. swim team. Why? Because in Lochte's success, he's one of the most successful swimmers behind Michael Phelps in the history of the U.S. swim team. He represented the U.S. But also in his failure... As a member of the U.S. swim team, he represented the United States of America and his actions in Brazil, and he was indifferent to that. And he didn't consider it and how he acted, and therefore the team said, you will not represent us because of your actions like this. If that is the case, we're swimming. Swimming. How much more the case for the eternal righteous, perfect kingdom of the creator and sustainer and redeemer of this world. You and I have been saved into his kingdom. We represent him as his people. When we pray the prayer, hallowed be his name, we are saying, do a work in us so that when we go out into the world, we reflect and demonstrate that you have a good and solid and completely set apart representation or rep, uh, uh, reputation in this world. The prayer itself is causing us to begin to think about our lives and our actions and how they reflect upon King Jesus who set his life aside to redeem and save me and save you. As we look about and think about the coming of the kingdom of Christ, as we wait, because it's not here yet, he has left us in this world for a purpose, to represent and reflect him as his people. 
to properly respond to the one who gave all for us. We must look at our lives, at our actions. And may we never be one like Joab, who is indifferent to how our sin and our actions reflect upon our king, because we are his people. God says, I will be God to you, and you will be my people. We see here that our king is calling us to address our inconsistencies, to address our inaccurate self-perceptions, and to put away the indifference we have to how we reflect his reputation in the world. It's only by God's grace that we've been brought into his kingdom. May that be what motivates us to live lives of righteousness and godliness and holiness, that the name of Jesus would be praised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the redemption that is ours in Christ. We thank you that uh, Jesus is our Savior and our King. Uh, We pray and ask that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and in our lives, that we would address and deal with the sin that we find there as we await his coming and look for the sure establishment of his kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.